this is Giant. I got your visual. Come in, Mike. I'm standing by for you. Roger. I'll be there in a couple of mics. In the meantime, give him help. listening to the men among men stories podcast with myself hank and my lovely and voluptuous host bindu eh indeed gentlemen politics are none of my business i am only a soldier but i know where the trouble lies the party spirit of a few wretched individuals prevents the ataman the rada and each one of you from doing all that you want to do for your brothers and sons in spite of all your goodwill your hands are tied and you can do nothing. Brothers in arms, from the day when your Ataman and his government are masters, instead of these brawlers, your children will want for nothing. I am leaving for the front. Can I say to my splendid men that their fathers and brothers, the members of the local Rada, are coming to their rescue like one man? That is a passage, direct quotation by the author of today's book, Piotr Rangel. And this is his book, Always with Honor. Pyotr Rangel was the last commander of white Russian forces during the Russian Civil War. Last commander in the West, at least. And this is a bit of a different book today because we're looking not at the memoirs of just one soldier, but at the memoirs of a commander with many, many men under his direct responsibility. So yeah, totally change of pace from what we typically do here but obviously because of the fact that he commands a lot of dudes and very very adverse conditions i took a lot out of this one uh, i know you you were very interested in historically and i was a little i was a little iffy when you uh you broached the idea of doing this specific book because i kind of like the stories of the boots on the ground and this is this is kind of a guy in an armchair <laughs> yeah to be fair, he does like actually see combat through a little bit of the book. Like he leads like cavalry charges and stuff, which is pretty intense. And we'll, we'll get into that obviously about the specifics of that war. But I think that uh, I think that he was a very very wise man for his time, and he had a lot of insight in leadership and tactics and strategy which apply in context outside the military sphere. So as I was going through the book, despite this guy being a Russian general in a war, basically 100 years ago, I guess it's a 100th anniversary now of, of his war ending. Around, the yeah, Russian around, yeah. As of, at the time of recording this in 2021, mm-hmm. there's a lot of lessons he imparts in terms of his own like leadership principles and how he deals with disorder and disunity and confusion and disillusionment which is a which is a recurring theme with a lot of with a lot of people how he deals with uh, insubordination with drunkenness i mean you name it in any any leadership problem you can encounter in a military context or even like a business context which is more relevant for me like a business context or a family context or a political context, especially again in the time of recording this in 2021, the world's kind of a shit show. <laughs> to to Bit say of the an very, understatement, to, yeah. To say the very least, a lot of uh, principles he imparts that uh, I found very very interesting, and the man was kind of ahead of his time, but at the same time, very very much one of the men of the era, mm-hmm. uh, which 
I found kind of interesting. A little bit of a change of pace from what we typically do. But his this book, uh, to give a little context, as you mentioned, he's the last white Russian army commander. He commands forces in the West and eventually down to what is now modern-day Crimea. It's still Crimea, then, yeah. I guess. So. so he commands forces all the way down to Crimea and eventually evacuates with them to Constantinople, and then I think this, he makes it to England, right? Eventually? No, sorry, he makes it to Serbia. Yes, yeah, writing, he makes he's it writing to a Serbia. Lot of, he's writing a lot of this book at different times in the mid-20s, and the book concludes with a speech he gives in 1927, right before his death in 1928, under somewhat mysterious circumstances. He was... A czarist officer who had seen service in the Russo-Japanese War of 1905. Um, Wrangel was, from my understanding, at least somewhat aristocratic. He, yes, he certainly to, had an aristocratic background. Yeah, aristocratic background. The, the very old Russian aristocracy. He had continued his service in the military as a cavalry officer throughout the First World War, the early stages of the Russian Revolution, he is present in the uh, Kerensky's government as a cavalry officer as well. He goes right back into combat when the uh, Kerensky government, the provisional government, after the Tsar's abdication, he goes right back into the fight, resigns, and then the Russian Civil War breaks out and he comes right back to lead white Russian forces, resigns again <laughs> because he's not very impressed with uh, the right white Russian leadership at the time, and when all hope is lost, and he knows the the war is basically done and they're going to lose, he actually shows up again, and he's put in a very unique position that you te you could technically call it just a military dictator. In fact, that's what like Wikipedia says when I was just kind mm -hmm. of doing preliminary research on this guy. He becomes a military dictator. So when you hear that, you have certain presuppositions but he's a, he's in a very unique position and we'll we'll get into that so anyways that's a quick rundown of his life and a very very quick rundown of the sequence of events that happens after the abdication of the czar uh, czar nicholas ii in russia after the i guess february revolution february revolution in 1917 it's a very long and convoluted history we won't get too much into the the Russian Revolution and stuff because there's this book actually does make reference to the revolution's events and the death of Rasputin and how it all kind of snowballs from there and the and the First World War and stuff. But um, hopefully, if you're listening to this, you have some like basic knowledge of, of that sequence of events and the First World War and maybe even a little bit of the Jap Russo-Japanese War, especially if you're getting into this book for yourself. Um, especially if you're getting into this book for yourself, there's a lot of mentions of his service in the Russo-Japanese War, and that in itself is a very convoluted and complex topic. So you're going to need to know that at a baseline level. For us as English speakers and not Russian speakers, we understand that the Cyrillic language exists on a completely different syntax than our Latin alphabet. So the translation here is, I think, the um, 
well, at least the copy we read is an original translation. Yes. By but, people but, who are not, I think there's a disclaimer at the beginning yeah, of the book, who are not, who are also not fluent in Russian exactly. perfectly. So, yeah. It's not a bad translation, but uh, there are limitations just because the Russian language is so yeah. very radically different. If you want to know how different Russia is from the West, the February and October revolutions take place in March and November by our right, calendar. Yeah. Yeah. It's a different calendar entirely. Mm-hmm. Julian versus Gregorian calendar, right? Yeah. So, yeah, they inhabit a very different world, especially at this time. Oh, absolutely. Russia, his perspective is from a... I guess he's he's a czarist. He's he's very he becomes a white Russian leader, so he's more affiliated with the czar of Russia, which was the historical authority prior to this February Revolution that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. And as a result, his his worldview is very very different than perhaps even like a modern Russians. And I think the way he writes and speaks is probably different as well, because as we know through history, that the Soviet Union has probably changed language a little bit and perceptions and worldviews, even into like 2021, because they were around for several decades, right? They, they, 80 years, I think, wasn't years. it? Yeah, yeah. The 80 years of existence is pretty dramatic, so... Yeah. I mean, that's basically a full human lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that does, like, that will change language and stuff, I'm sure. So this is a... We have to understand there's limitations just because of the language. It's like literally like reading the Quran or the Bible, you have to understand there's limitations to reading it, like yeah. verbatim, because Arabic and ancient Hebrew, uh, ancient Aramaic, which yeah. was the, the language of you know the era, right? Ancient Greek. <laughs> Not yeah. a lot of us speak it, so yeah. especially in the Anglosphere in, in up here in Canada, like we don't speak the languages. So we have to understand there's limitations on that front. Um, there's a little bit of a historical limitation. Like, if you don't actually know the sequence of the Russian Civil War, yeah. uh, just what would you recommend? You're the you're the nerd. You watch all the YouTube. Yeah, I'm the right? history nerd. Uh, there, there's a lot of good books to get into. In the, as far well, as okay, the Russian say, Civil War, say you know nothing. Say you know, like, what's okay. the baseline? Someone should the come basis, into before they even listen to the rest. Before of this they podcast. listen to the rest of this podcast, and or read the book, or read the book. Um, Again, I'm not going to familiarize. I'm not going to say you should familiarize yourself with any particular text, but basically, a lot of people when they hear the term "civil war," think like American Civil War or Spanish Civil War or the English Civil War, where there are more or less two distinct sides. Yes. In English Civil War, once it spread out into Scotland and Ireland, that became less. But like you know, you have royalists and parliamentarians. The Russian Civil War is not that neat. It's very much more chaotic. You do have the two main sides, the Reds and the Whites. The Reds are, of course, the Bolsheviks and their supporters, while the Whites are kind of a coalition of former Tsarist generals, uh, reformers and moderates who generally supported the Kerensky government but don't like the Bolsheviks. And basically like Cossack warlords. Right, okay, so we, we got to backtrack here. You're given a lot of information, jumping ahead of me. What is actually like something that you would recommend somebody if they want like a crash course? Okay, like, um, just the sequence of events. Let's not get into the factions right away because it's gonna get 
as as you're already starting to mention, you're getting. I know you're getting to it. Like it's a gong show. It's yeah, a shit show. It is. Um, but what? What's do you want me to like, say? Like, what happened, yeah. or do you want me to recommend? No, no. What, like I want a recommendation because okay. this is a really complex history. We don't want to like dance oh, around it yes. per se. There's a lot more content, and I think that if you don't have that baseline, you okay. should check out some of that content. Yeah, so Oxford has a very... I don't know if you've ever seen these. They're very small, very short books. They're like tiny, like literal yeah, pocketbooks. The, yeah, the There's one of those on the Russian Revolution that's pretty yeah. good. Describes you sort of what the Bolsheviks and other people were kind of thinking at the time. What was yeah. the sort of plan going forward? It goes a bit past the Russian Civil War into the first few years of Soviet rule, but um, it's a good way of sort of understanding, you know, why there was the February Revolution, then why there was this second October Revolution. Right, right. So that's a good resource uh, on YouTube. Yeah. There's, also, if you're there studying... Are, there are, like, animated basic sequence of events videos. Yeah, if you're studying YouTube, anything about right. the First World War as well, you're going to get in... You're, totally you're going to come into contact yeah. with stuff about Russia... And the Russian Civil War. And it's yeah, going to talk totally. about events that precede it, like the Russo-Japanese War and the failed 1905 revolution. Like, was, yeah, okay. That, that was more like a series of riots and protests than a revolution, but it, yeah, that, that yeah, happened. It wasn't, it wasn't a true revolution. Yeah. We, we saw a real revolution in February 1917. So Yes. That being said, it's... Like like I said, this is why I have you recommend the, the media, because this is a very... Complex. This is a very complex topic. It's not. It's it's like uh, it's like and, the and again, there's limitations on the language front already. Yeah. So, if you have that limitation on the history side, you're gonna get yeah lost very easily. Okay. So, anyways, you're you're getting into um, you recommended the Oxford books. I recommend maybe like a just a timeline rundown. Yeah, various YouTube history you're channels about, do good. You're talking about sorry. Yeah, YouTube channels are good. Yeah. You're talking about. Um, you're talking about all these different factions. Yes. What what factions? How many factions are there? There's a lot. So I've already mentioned there's the two main ones. There's the Reds yeah. and the Whites. But there is also an anarchist black army led by a guy named Nestor Makhno in the Ukraine. There are the Green Armies, which are basically peasant rebels who fight everybody because everybody is trying to steal their grain. You have various independence movements, some of which sort of side with the communists, some of which are very anti-communist, all across Eastern Europe, in the Baltic, in Ukraine, in Finland, uh, and all across Central Asia too, in the, the, the Caucasus, uh, in the Central, uh, in Mongolia, in the Central uh, Asian Muslim republics like Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan. Tons of different groups all wanting their thing. Um, other people who are not Russian or subjects of the Russian Empire get pulled into this. Uh, the Entente, send soldiers in mainly britain okay, let's preface, america, yeah. yep. uh, america canada france. japan france italy even sends a few guys to um mainly help out the whites uh and there all, are all these were the factions that were against the central powers and former yeah. russian allies or i guess the allies of the former imperial russian state during the first yes. world war the entente there's uh german freikorps units operating in the baltic who get pulled into this war there is uh, the the Soviets fight basically an o a almost completely separate war with Poland in 1920, but it's part of this bigger massive conflict that's going on because the Russian Civil War is still going on in 1920. So, anyways, China gets pulled into the war in Mongolia. 
there's and I, I haven't even gone to the on. Czechoslovak it, it, Legion it, it, yet. It, it yeah, go <laughs> on forever. It, yeah. it is those a, are all the main ones. So okay. again, yeah. the, there's that limitation historically in terms of the just the amount of factions and the timeline. It's it's, it's insane. Yeah. It's not an easy. It's not a uh, one side against another side kind of war. It's a, yeah. It's, it is another world war in of itself. Yeah, it's basically so, everyone's got a gun, go nuts kind of war. Yeah. On top of that, there's bandit groups that th- th- these guys are only known by like their last names and stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's another limitation to this book. Uh, he, uh, Peter Rangel, when he's writing it, it's a relatively short book. It's only about 300 pages. Actually, the book itself is 200 and. 60 pages i think and 30 pages are 30 pages at the end are actually a separate speech that's not that wasn't part of the original publication of this book mm-hmm. right this book is basically a bunch of really long diary entries it feels pretty like, much yeah right that he's writing post-war and at the very end of this book um the version we have by the way is is from mystery grove publishing who we've mentioned in the past in this yes. podcast yep shout out to them for uh reproducing this because this book had been out of print for many many decades and very likely, if you're listening to this podcast, you have no idea. You've never heard of this book. You might have heard of the guy. Mm-hmm. If you're in a like white Russian history in the Russian Civil War, you probably heard of like animal Ad- admiral, not animal animal. <laughs> He's a bit of an animal, I guess. Admiral uh, Kolchak, because he had the movie made about him. Yes, yeah, There's, Admiral you know, Kolchak yeah, is. Everybody's. I think everyone, everyone who's read anything about the Russian Civil War has heard, heard of Kolchak. So yeah. he's mentioned in the book, but uh, Wrangle's kind of like a. what's the word like a tragic hero of of this whole very much so yeah Yeah. so like I said there's limitations to the language there's limitations to like history because you need a certain benchmark of understanding before you get into this before you can even get into the story and also we have in front of us a map there's a lot of limitations to your understanding of this actual story if you don't know the geography of where a lot of these battles were taking place in Russia, in Crimea, in uh, Siberia. He talks about Siberia. He talks about the Polish geography and the, the war, as you mentioned, with the Poles and the Soviets. There's fighting in the uh, Don and Kuban Cossack territories in the Caucasus. We go on forever on that, on just the geography, right? And the, the Don versus the Cuban Cossacks versus, you know, another Cossack group versus, yeah. versus uh, Captain Orlov, this this random bandit he mentions yeah. that causes absolute mayhem and pandemonium. And he basically names him dictator before eventually Wrangle does become dictator. He's like, you're, you're, the, you're in charge now and I support you. And he's like, I, you're just a random bandit guy. No. <laughs> it, it is a... It, it's... It's a bit much to get into, despite being a relatively short book. It's it's a lot of stuff that it's a bit of a rabbit hole you got to get down. But when you get down into it, you find, or at least I found, a read where a lot of leadership principles came out. A lot of, I guess, command principles you call it that apply in a bunch of different contexts that are really the result of someone who's really actually been boots on the ground on the front lines and understanding the needs of his organization, which in this case is the the white Russian movement army engaging in combat operations in Crimea and the Caucasus. 
and it's a, it's incredible what this guy's able to accomplish. Uh, very early on, he's serving under General Denikin. By the way, again, language barrier. With apologies yeah. if we're mispronouncing the names, but General Denikin is the first kind of overall commander well, of the White Russian forces. He's the general who sort of takes over after Kolchak, right? Because Kolchak is officially and legally like the head of the. The sort of state that the and I'm using yep. state with sort of quotation marks yeah. here. It, it, it's a very loosely defined state, but uh, he is kind of the official leader of the sort of white Russian cause. Yeah, he's before, killed in action. No, he's actually betrayed and executed. Oh, okay, sorry, he's not killed in that. Yeah, that's yes. yeah. The I, I knew that. The Czechoslovak sorry, legion yeah. hand him, who had been previously fighting on the white side hand him over to the Bolsheviks yeah, so in exchange it, to... Anyways, like, let's not get too yeah. much. It's gonna, we're going to yeah. go off. Okay, long story short, Kolchak is executed. Okay, not even long story. Let me, let me just becomes oh commander God. after. Yeah. Let, let me just go on. Let me just go on with this with this point here. Um, Denikin is a guy he serves under. Yeah. Let's focus on Wrangle because Wrangle's, Wrangle's the important one here. Uh, he's a subordinate commander through kind of the first third of the book, I would say. Yeah. He's a subordinate commander, and he sees a lot of his leadership failures at the commander-in-chief level. A lot of, you know, almost call it office politics. Very much so. And um, then just how, like, toxic, you know, gossip is. There's a lot of gossip and rumors, and it's... You're, you know, you're fighting a war, an ex- and not just any war, an existential war, if we haven't, you know, made that point clear already. Like, they're fighting a very existential war for the for a very vague notion of what is left, because at this stage, the Tsar, Tsar Nicholas II, has actually been executed, his family's been killed, there is no Romanov dynasty, so what, what the hell are you fighting for? And it gets a little confusing, because... These guys have a lot of spats internally, and unfortunately, uh, it manifests in Denikin ultimately resigning and then Wrangle having to take overall command of all these dudes and trying to find a, a unified reason to continue on this war and also fight it effectively. And throughout this, he's also traversing many thousands of kilometers on horseback or on foot, because his military is not really all that mechanized, no. having already been mauled by the First World War. That's... Like, Russia was pretty messed up. There were mechanized units, there were armored cars, there were tanks, yeah. but they were very, very badly mauled by the First World War. And by the time they were engaging in the Russian Civil War, you're going back to almost uh, Napoleonic tactics yeah. with cavalry charges and infantry advance and cavalrys at the at the flank, it would have looked like a set piece battle from antiquity. Yeah, if not for all the colorful uniforms. Yeah, the bands. the Russian Civil War is in some ways the technology and tactics are similar to World War One, but in some ways they're also much older and kind of unique. There aren't a lot of there are armored cars and there are tanks, but there there's not a lot of large armored engagements. Uh, there's very little aircraft that's used uh this is probably the last major war where cavalry plays a huge part and there's there's something unique actually in the russian civil war armored trains literally just giant trains with like uh, they're mentioned several times in the book 
with metal and guns on them. That's kind of how you move your armies around in Russia. They're either on foot, on horseback, or on these trains which have cannons and shoot at each other. Like it's it's a very a very different kind of war than the trenches on the Western Front. In World so War. on that note, it is kind of a predecessor with just crappier technology to the Second World War. A lot of the battles that take place or I guess the battle fronts, you could call it. I just, we're going to get copyright striked for that. <laughs> I just said that. But anyways, a lot of the uh, the battle spaces, let's call it, okay? Shit. Don't even edit that ba- out, Battle fronts is copyrighted, spaces. actually, because of that probably, video game probably, series? Probably. you got to be kidding me. Probably. We don't want to get in any shit. But anyways, the, the battle... Like where, where the where these fights are happening, where these campaigns are happening, are basically the same places that the Nazis and the Soviets collide in the Second World War, and it's the same kind of maneuver warfare. Just instead of tanks, they're 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 operating with cavalry, with horse and trains, troops yeah, and trains. So it's interesting because uh, he mentions a lot of c- campaigns and things and operations, and I think his headquarters at one point is at, in this city called Saritsyn. And I was reading this book because I don't know a hell of a lot about Russian geography. I just assumed it's this central Russian city. It sounds somewhat important. And then I printed out the map right before we did this podcast. I'm like, all right, let's find this Saritsyn place. And it's Stalingrad. Everybody knows Stalingrad. I'm like, I didn't know it's Stalingrad. Now, Stalingrad is Volgograd. Volgograd, I think. Yeah, Volgograd now. I think. We're probably screwing that pronunciation. Sorry, guys. But we all know Stalingrad. Everybody's heard of Stalingrad. So, Saritsyn is Stalingrad. And I was just like, holy shit. Like, there was fighting there in the Civil War, and there's fighting there in the Second World War. So, we have Crimea. I've heard pretty extensively of the... I've read pretty extensively about the battle for Crimea during the Second World War. the The eventual evacuation and stuff, and pandemonium there we've obviously heard of moscow the capital the current capital of russia there's there's fighting literally like right on the doorstep of russia and that's how that's how close the uh, nazis came in you know 1941 they came very close to russia's doorstep uh well at least sorry moscow's doorstep they came very close to moscow's doorstep they're fighting these same kind of areas Right through through Kursk, through Kharkov, uh, through there's a little bit of fighting in Kiev in the book. Yeah, there de- there definitely is fighting in Kiev in the well, there Russian is in the Civil Russian Civil War. War. I don't know if it's mentioned too much in the book, but there is fighting in Kiev. There's there's a war in Poland. It's just these, these same places that you hear again twenty years later in, in the Second World War. So Mato, it sucks it, to live in Eastern Europe. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just it, it's. It's really interesting in, in, in that sense, but uh, you kind of need to know the geography. So we have Moscow, we have like Siberia in the north. We have Moscow kind of in the center. Under that is kind of Saritsyn. Uh, we have under that is basically the Caucasus, which are a mountainous area, and that's that's where the uh, Don and the Cuban Cossacks are. And then further west, you have Ukraine, and then further, even further west, you have Poland. That's a rough geography lesson of the area and he's he's operating on all all these areas and 
I, I found that part I found that part particularly interesting. Mm-hmm. So, anyways, we prefaced this crap long enough. I want to get into some of the points that really, really stuck out to me. And this is honestly a book that you will have to read because we can't go over every single point. This is not a market substitute for reading the book. You have to go out and read this one, I would say. But there's certain like very, very important takeaways I have. And, and one of them is um, just the idea of, what do you want to call it, like, Staying out of politics, and that's pragmatism. Pragmatism. A... No, that's that's not staying out of politics. That is that is how you exercise political power. That's how you exercise like business power. You have to be yeah, but the way the you... way that the wrangle interacts with politics, both both on the as in the sort of office politics you mentioned earlier, and in the sort of grander sort of because this is a political war it started with you know revolutions and coups and all that kind of stuff is he doesn't get bogged down in ideology he doesn't get bogged down in personal feuds he's like okay what's best for us as a whole is he kind of i find that a lot from reading wrangle he's very like he doesn't get bogged down in the minutiae yeah so one of the things that stuck out to me was wrangle's pragmatism he's in terms of the tactics he employs to maintain uh, political power. Now, again, we I mentioned he's initially subordinate to this guy, Denikin. Denikin kind of has a bit of a breakdown of sorts mentally because he's not the best commander. He's a little too much... He smells his own farts kind of guy. He's got a little bit too much of an ego. and Long story short, it doesn't work out for him because he's too wrapped up in ideology and politics. And... Eventually, he becomes a from he goes from a very high-ranking general in this army to the commander in chief because he he gets exiled. Well, he doesn't get exiled; he just leaves. He's just like yeah. screw this, and he comes back eventually because, as the title implies, always with honor. He wants to preserve the honor of his army and stuff, and he knows a war is lost, but he's still going to show up, basically because he's invited as the uh, commander in chief. He's invited to help try to save this army, even though he's. He knows it's over. One of the tactics he employs is disinfo. So he'll... He will, like, intentionally lie just to keep keep things going. Not not necessarily grievous lies, either. And I, I don't even know if lying is the right word. You know what I mean, though? Like, he... You know what I mean? You disagree. You disagree. You I don't he's an ne- honest soul. I don't, I don't necessarily a- disagree. I think what he was—he like was good at telling people what they wanted to hear. Right. I'm not. No, I'm not sure if that classifies no, that because that I, can I, mean I, lying I or it can. I, I vehemently disagree. He was not a yes man. He was no, not I, a yes I man. No, I don't think that's don't the think same he, thing he as he being a yes man. Tell, I don't think that's the same thing as being a yes man. No, he didn't tell people what he wanted. They wanted to hear. I, I would say that. No, I think he gave people the idea that I guess he reinforced the mission in people's mind more effectively than just beating it into them, right? He injected it into their minds rather than beat it into them. He injected ideas into people's minds. He didn't make overt threats ever as far as I was concerned um, because he does have, he has incidents with not only different ethnic groups, but he's with journalists 
right? And he has to eventually implicitly imply that the newspapers in the area have to start practicing a little bit of censorship just for the sake of operational security because the enemy doesn't need to know the state of our morale, right? And it's not necessarily to lie, right? It's not necessarily to project a certain vision of what the army should be onto his own army or what he expects out of the army or, or just to give people false hope, right? But it's just to emphasize the mission because one of Denikin's failings is that he explicitly emphasizes the mission too much. And that mission, I guess, can be summed up in the words Russia, one and indivisible. It keeps coming up, right? That's the mission. There's no... We're not restoring the Tsar, right? There's no... There's, there's no, no Tsar to there's restore no Tsar anymore. There's no Tsar to restore. There's no royal family. And as I mentioned earlier, this is a bit of a confusing mess of a war. So what's a simple message? Russia won an indivisible. Now, when Denikin brings up that theme to the different Cossack groups who, for context, are very, very... I guess you can call them wild men. We're very single-minded and very, very independent. independent people. Yeah. Exactly. His whole shtick is, I don't give a damn that you're a Cossack, you're a Russian first. That's not exactly what you tell to someone who is an independent-minded person. I can't come to someone who is independent-minded, say they... You can't go to, like, a Texan and be like, you know... Texas doesn't matter, you're just an American. Yeah. It's, it's not going to go over well. It doesn't really go over well. Yeah. And I should we should mention here that one of the re success points of the old Tsarist system was for a lot of these groups, Cossacks, a lot of the Central Asian Muslim peoples, Mongols, they did a very good job of sort of letting them have local autonomy. Yes. And one thing a lot of these groups were very scared of is both the whites and the reds in this war kind of wanted to put their sort of way of doing things and their beliefs on sort of everyone. They weren't, again, Russia won and undivisible under, you know, communist or anti-communist. That's right. That didn't fly with a lot of these very local, very independent, different ethnic groups and different cultural groups. It's like yeah. that whole Yugoslavia, Kingdom of Yugoslavia concept. Absolutely. It just doesn't really work yeah. when you have... Now, it can work. But if you just try to beat it into people, it doesn't really work. You can't mm -hmm. beat a tribe into another one. You can't. No, that doesn't. Do it. Try, Many of the yeah. issues we see in the modern world are are direct result of yeah. trying to you know take a bunch of different people or different shapes and fit them through the same square pin. Exactly. And yeah. We see that you know we can. We, this is a bit of a tangent, but the 19th century in Africa, you have these European powers that draw these beautiful straight lines. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, so, you have. So they draw these beautiful straight lines as the borders for different countries. You know what I'm talking about? You knew right away what I was, what I was going to get at there. Yeah. These beautiful straight lines. And it's like, but my tribe is... <laughs> 10,000 years old, but I have a pencil. You just split our tribe in half and you put us in the same area as the tribe we've been fighting for also a thousand years. Yeah. And has eaten my children and stuff. Yeah. Why are we in the same like box as them? 
Yeah. And it's like, well, yeah. because you are now Belgian or you are French now, yeah. it doesn't work. Yeah, both during colonization and during decolonization, where they yeah, tried exactly. to make American-style nation-states out of both these places. Both times using the same lines, shoved each using other. The yeah, lines, yeah, no, using yeah. the same borders, and it's just like yeah, it yeah. doesn't really work. Yeah, so. this it was not good. Yeah. Wrangle's living in the 1920s, and he actually kind of acknowledges this because he mm-hmm. sees Denikin just harping on this message, and it doesn't really work. It doesn't really sell. Now, the message should sell because the Cossacks, despite being initially wooed by the Bolshevik themes of land reform for all, which is a key thing, initially it was kind of like bread for all, and then it became land reform for all, which is a you know nice and rosy message. They learned very quickly that land for all meant their land being taken and given to everybody else. So they they very quickly fell out with with latching themselves too much to that Bolshevik ideology. There were obviously still communist Cossack units during this war and Cossack communist sympathizers, but not all same, of whom fought willingly, I should and, point yeah. out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well Some of whom did. But. Throughout this entire war you see that a lot a lot of people don't fight willingly yeah because it just becomes a desperate a lot of the red army generals actually are basically former czarist generals held hostage yeah so anyways i i I digress on that point um you have these fiercely independent people and wrangle well he has to wrangle (laughs) the perfect opportunity to say wrangle has to wrangle them together and turn him into this cohesive unit. He sees the failings of Denikin, and when he... As Denikin fails this offensive into Moscow, he comes close, but he basically just does the classic overstretching his forces, not reinforcing certain sectors, and then eventually this this offensive grinds to a halt, and they get pushed back. Denikin kind of loses his mind. (laughs) Rage quits his job. Rage quits his job. Somebody tries to kill him, he freaks out, and he just goes to England. Yeah. He gives up. So, at this point, Wrangle's like, screw this, he leaves. Well, he's actually gone at this point, he, he left before this. But he hears, like, Denikin's left, and you've been invited to be the commander-in-chief. Also, Denikin made himself, like, military dictator, basically, while you're gone. So, you're basically becoming a military dictator. And he's kind of like, well... <sighs> The war's over. He knows the war's over at this point, but he's like, I gotta try to save the army the best I can because he's again, he is he's served for about fifteen years and twenty years in the military at this point. Most of his life, most of his adult life is spent in the military. So he's like, okay, I gotta go back, and uh, he sees the failings of Denikin. So he doesn't necessarily just tell people what they want to hear, right? What but, I mean- he, but he tells people, I think, what they need yes. to hear. I what think that's I, a key difference. Yeah, what I meant by that statement, I didn't mean he's some guy who's just, you know, you know, flattering everyone, showing rosy yeah. ears, but he he's very good at getting people to sort of go along. He's like, okay, this is what you guys need to do because this is what is will be the impact on you guys. Yeah, he was very good at contextualizing things for people because he didn't just make decrees. Yes. He was always consulting, and I think that's key because he, he consults... Well, so he has this issue, um, I, I mentioned it earlier, he has an issue with these journalists that are kind of reporting that morale is a little low, right? And things are not going well for them in this war. And he knows this. And when he goes out and inspects his troops, especially towards the end, there's a there's an excerpt where there's a guy in a 
parade formation. So they're supposed to be in ceremonial dress, and this poor guy in like the middle of the Russian winter, his pants are gone because they've been lost in the many years of combat, and he's in his woolen breeches and his underwear. He's literally standing there in the underwear being inspected by foreign dignitaries, and this is the best they can muster. They don't have enough uniforms or boots or weapons or ammunition for these guys, especially towards the end. It was a very, very, very desperate situation. We almost can't emphasize enough how desperate it was. And yet, he has to somehow keep the morale up, right? And his whole thing that he tells the journalists when he consults with them, he's like, okay, I need to know your perspective, right? And they're like, well, we want to just maintain freedom of the press. And that's their key thing. And he's like, I will let you maintain that, but you have to understand, you're stuck in the fortress with us that's being besieged right now, right? And I'm willing to give interviews to you guys, but if you help this fortress crack, like, we're all screwed. We're, like, we're all in this together. And he, he kind of implies at the end, like, there will be consequences if this keeps going on. But he doesn't say, like, listen here, assholes, I'm just going <laughs> to kill you. Yeah. As a lot of people with total authority, as he does, because he does become a, yeah. a dictator, essentially, right? And that's why, like, that's another reason I, I wasn't, I was just like, oh, this is just another idiot in. This is another Adolf Hitler that just goes, I want this to happen, right? Yeah. That's not his style. He, he's like, listen, we're all in this together, right? Now, I, I think he does, in his heart of hearts, believe it, that we they are, they are actually all in this together. He doesn't dislike the journalists for um, m- reporting on the conditions and allow... It basically turns into Soviet propaganda. Soviet's like, oh, these guys are... They're these czarist... You know, These reactionary swine. Yeah, they're 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 making their you know slave soldiers fight for them to the death because at this point a lot of them are conscripts on both sides because yeah. so many men have died, so they're starting to just conscript everybody at gunpoint. <laughs> at gunpoint. So they're reporting the truth, that truth, and that was the truth. But he's just like, listen, like, unfortunately, you're on this side of the border, and when the Soviets come over, they won't be exactly nice to you and. Maybe it's going to happen. He didn't say that explicitly. He knew, like, they're going to lose the war, but he's like, fellas, like, we're in the fortress, and that's his key That's his key message, and you guys have to understand that. And, yeah, there will be consequences from me, but there's also consequences from the Soviets, and whenever fortresses collapse, they tend to collapse on a bunch of people. So they, they had to understand that, and th- that's something. Even right up until the very end... Right, and there's there's plenty of examples of this, but uh, I think another one that stuck out to me was he bugs out of Crimea eventually when all this collapses, and at the very end, I'm kind of jumping ahead here. We're not doing this chronologically, but he doesn't tell the troops right away we're evacuating. Like this, this war is over. Goodbye. Yeah. Right. He's one of like the last people leaving. You know, he he sticks, he coordinates all the efforts, but he maintains at least the facade that we're still fighting fit and we're gonna defend. Like we're coming back someday. We're coming back. Well, he doesn't say that. He doesn't yeah. even say that. No, he's just like we're still fighting here. We're still yeah. fighting here. But there's an implication that like we're not surrendering. We're the fight is gonna be continued. Just no, no, no. I, I no, no. Sorry, that's not what I'm talking about. Okay. Let's go back. Like, when he's actually coordinating the evacuation efforts, what he actually is telling the men. 
and it's not you're evacuating. It's just like get on the boat. Yeah. Are we evacuating? No, we're still fighting. Get on the boat. And he actually spreads a false rumor to his uh, subordinate generals that we're going to have an amphibious landing somewhere else. Because mm-hmm. the troops don't need it. Because what happens during when people panic? The unity of the team and the, the yeah. mission, it, it all goes to shit. Everybody starts thinking for themselves. If you give, if you have like 60, 70,000 men, like he has at this point that he's evacuating on a like, weekly basis, all thinking for themselves, you're going to have literally people stepping on top of other people to get on boats. Yeah. Right? You're going to have a situation where there's mass panic and everyone wants to get out. Um, this is another weird tangent, but I I remember learning about this when I was doing certain fire safety courses. Some of the deadliest fires in histories, and I, I'm not just fires, but like uh, building fires, but also like stadium collapses. And and recently in Saudi Arabia, in, in uh, Mecca, in Medina, when they had that huge stampede, right? What causes those things where you have these mass casualty events? It's because everyone's... Like, one person starts to panic and starts to run. And everyone starts to run in the direction of that same person. It's this herd mentality. And then eventually what happens is, despite everybody having the same objective to escape, everybody starts thinking for themselves. They start stepping over people and stepping on people's heads and then climbing on top of other people. And then eventually you have, like, stampedes. And in the cases of, like, mass casualty fires, like, a lot of people go to the same exit. They don't realize there's, like, six other exits in the building. Everyone goes into the same exit following the one person and then they get stuck. And then people just start shoving each other and you can't breathe and your face is being stepped on and you start just fighting to get out and then they all die. Yeah. Right? And that's what you have to recognize in a, in a bad situation. Like, you, you cannot panic. You cannot afford to panic. Right? Let's talk about... So back to military context, most casualties in antiquity and medieval battles... Have on one side broken ran. Yeah, one side broken ran, and that's where most people got killed. They weren't killed in the when they were slogging it, when the when the infantry smashed into each other, and and then they started shooting. You know, the longbow started going off, and the crossbow started going off. Right? Yeah, that caused casualties. People died, but most of those casualties always take place when dudes are just screw it, and they start booking it. One guy starts booking it. A second guy starts booking it. Oh, I know that guy. He's booking, and I'm out of here. Three other dudes start booking, and then you know, the next thing you know, your army's gone. It doesn't exist anymore. And what's your other army doing? They're following you with swords and crossbows and lances and stuff and cutting you to All pieces. All aim now neatly at your backs. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. An, army, an army facing in the wrong direction is not going to do very well. Right? Yeah, exactly. It's not an army anymore when it's facing in the wrong direction. So... There has to be, a, in, in just like leadership and stuff, there has to be the idea of an orderly withdrawal, right? And that's why people, you know, credit Dunkirk. It was, they lost. That's why they credit, you know, Churchill and, and the, the high command present during the Dunkirk evacuation. And that's why they don't like, you know, people say that Singapore was a complete disaster and the Philippines campaign early in the Second World War was a disaster, Right, because these these when they're losing, they panic and they're they're like, "What do we do?" And then next thing you know, you're 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 done. Mm-hmm. Right? You're all prisoners of war. You're all killed, right? Um, 
so when you're evacuating troops or you're losing or you're just losing in life, whatever it is, like you can't you, you can't afford to panic. And he doesn't. He literally gives his men in this case. I guess you could call it false hope, but he's like, yeah, we're gonna have an amphibious landing. We're gonna you know fuck these bullshitties up. We're gonna, we're gonna kill them all. But he's actually planning an evacuation to save these men, mm-hmm. right? Because they need to know that we're still we're still in this fight. It's a lot harder to convince someone that we're still in this fight when you just say, "I, General Denikin, quit." Goodbye. <laughs> that's literally what his message. Was. He was literally just like, "I quit." Best of luck to you all. And there's like millions of men still on the front lines. Like what? <laughs> so you don't do wait. That. That's not this a good, wasn't the that's deal. Not a good leadership principle. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah. And Wrangle does pull off an evacuation, arguably worthy of Dunkirk, because he Amazing. moves basically the entire. Not just the White Russian army, but all their families, basically yeah. the White Russian state as it exists. And and the morale to is, Serbia. Yeah. The morale and stuff is so high yeah. during this evacuation because these guys think they're well he intentionally spreads the rumor. Yeah. He, these guys need to be single minded and mission oriented. Again, like, that's what he says he's What's the better mission? Is the better mission to go into the unknown? Because he knows like they're going into the they, this future's the future's very uncertain. But is is it better to like go into the unknown than to go into the known. And he's just like, yeah, we're going to go into a concept that these guys are familiar with, fighting the Bolsheviks. Yeah. And we're going to fight them here, and we're going to win here, because they don't, they won't be expecting this, guys, and he actually saves them all. Yeah, and Wrangle right. also never, like, formally surrenders at no. any point. He's very... And that's what I was going to the, the thing. He's so, very much views it as, like, this yeah, is a yeah, tactical yeah. retreat. So, <laughs> on the note of that that morale stuff, um, yeah. there's, a, there's a very telling moment in the book where there's... He's describing witnessing this. I think he's an Orthodox priest. He's actually really, really badly wounded. Because um, Orthodox priests would actually oftentimes go out to the front and bless the men and provide aid to the wounded and stuff like that. So this guy is seriously wounded from combat operations, defending this perimeter around Crimea that they've kind of set up. And he can, like, barely walk. But he's still working on this hospital ship, evacuating the wounded. Right? Because he thinks, as far as he's concerned, like, I gotta get these guys fighting fit again so that they can they can go, go back out to the front. And that's just... It keeps the morale high that way. And he could have just gone, like... Screw it! We're gonna go, you know, we're gonna bonsai charge this, right? We're gonna pull a pickets charge. We're gonna we're gonna just bum rush the enemy and one last stand for glory, death or glory, right? But yeah. he's like, no, like let's maybe we can live to fight another day. We I don't know what the future holds, but let's not fucking panic. Mm-hmm. I think the world panics a lot nowadays. We we see a lot of bad things happen. Oh well, look at the last two years. Yeah, look at the last two years. Yeah. We see a lot of panic, but it's just like don't panic. That does that does it does nothing to to panic, and that's that's easier said than done, of course, because especially in this very extreme situation, he could have yeah. easily pulled the what Denikin did, because um, Denikin was like winning the war until he wasn't, yeah, and he was just like I quit. Yeah, I do I do feel a bit almost sorry for Denikin. He had literally like a full mental breakdown almost because yeah. and he was in a command that he never wanted. Yep. And was suddenly thrust into, and into then into a political command too. As a military dictator of this mishmash of white Russian factions. Yes, many of whom don't like each other almost as much as they don't like the Bolsheviks. <laughs> exactly. So that's one. That's one key point. Is is don't panic. Okay, here's another one. Um, and it's the title of the book. It's always with honor. 
You always act with honor, as as especially in a leadership role. So as we mentioned several times, yeah. I just want to take a leak. Oh yeah. <laughs> We are querying on that. Yeah, we are. Okay. <clears throat> so the second big takeaway from this book, I think, is as the title implies, always with honor, because he always acts with honor, and it's a relatively simple context in this case. It's very simple as far as he's concerned, from his very aristocratic, old Russia mindset. As we mentioned earlier in the book. Or early, early in this, as we mentioned earlier in this podcast, he actually bugs out when Denikin's campaign into Moscow fails because he overstretches. That's a whole other complex topic. Yeah, but he he kind of stretches things a little bit, and um, the mission, the objective of Moscow doesn't materialize. He quits. Denikin actually accepts his resignation prior to this because he knows that. Denikin's attack is not going to work. Denikin's offensive into Moscow is pushing it because they're not reinforcing the units that are going up there. These guys are beat. They're probably all veterans of the First World War that are going into the hellfire of hundreds of thousands of Bolsheviks that want to kill them. And uh, it's just, it's not going well. And he knows this, so he bugs out. He actually goes to Constantinople initially, and then he, he eventually goes to Serbia, and he gets a letter basically saying, you got to come back, please, 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 help us lead us to victory. He knows there's there's going to be no victory. He knows that, I've said it a few times, and he knows that they're going to lose. He knows that it's over. Number one, he doesn't panic, as I mentioned earlier, but he also has this duty to accept. Uh, I think they're page, let's, let's read an excerpt here from page 109. Just on top of, let's get the man's perspective himself, uh, Chatilov was overcome with dismay when he heard of my decision. You know that it is an impossible fight. The army will be either, either be killed off to the last man or it will capitulate. You will be dishonored forever afterwards. You have already lost everything except your spotless reputation. It would be madness to lose that too. But when he saw that my decision was unalterable, he told me that he was coming with me. We boarded the man-of-war Emperor of India on March 21st and sailed for the Crimea, where it seemed the epilogue of the struggle was to take place. The next door day, this same man-of-war was to put in at Feodosia to take General Denikin on board. He was leaving for Constantinople without even having bid his troops farewell. The man had been most courageous and quite indifferent to danger in the old days of the Great War, but he had gradually become an altogether different person. He arrived unexpectedly in Constantinople, where his wife was awaiting him, and he and General Romanovsky went straight to the Russian embassy. Whilst he was talking to our military agent, General Ajapiev, Romanovsky waited for him in an adjoining room. When someone went into this room, he found that Romanovsky had been assassinated. Nobody had heard the shot, but an officer and a sister of mercy had been hurrying down the staircase. General Denikin's wife, distracted with fear, begged General Holman, who had just arrived, to send some English soldiers to the embassy to guard her husband. Our military agent urged Denikin to prevent our embassy from being occupied by a foreign guard, but in vain. The embassy was occupied and the doors guarded by sentinels. At the Mass for the Dead, which was said the, that evening, Denikin was present, surrounded by English soldiers. 
The next day, without paying his last respects to his friend, he left for England. So you see that contrast there between Denikin, especially towards the end of his participation in this conflict. He didn't even say goodbye to his troops that had been fighting for him for, I think, a year at this point. Or, well, well, prior to that, the First World War, right? He had been a great commander during the First World War, and these were his, these were his boys, and he was just like, no, I'm, I'm out, I'm, I'm done. He was broken by this. He was completely broken by it, and Wrangle... <laughs> is heading back into this nightmare. Right yeah. into this nightmare. <laughs> yeah. Now, even though Denikin's leaving, there's like... Jet, white army generals getting assassinated by communist sympathizers in Constantinople. Yeah. In an embassy. Inside the embassy, someone got schwacked, right, like, right beside him. Yeah. And he's, like, wigging out, and he's actually, initially, it's very ironic that he asked for the British soldiers to give a little context to that, because his whole deal, when he was negotiating with the British, as they were providing military assistance during these early stages of the Russian Civil War... He makes it very clear, we're not going to cede any territory for you for helping us. We know that's what you want. We know that you want a, some sort of a sphere of influence into what our new Russia is going to be. But we are, you know, Russia, one, one and, and indivisible. He's a little too much of an absolutist. And you can never be too much of an absolutist in a leadership position. You have, you just have to compromise. Otherwise... When things this don't happens. work out, this happens, right? The, the, the harder you, the, the, the harder you are, the harder you, or sorry, the bigger they are, the harder they fall, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's a, that's the way the old saying goes, and this is the case with Denikin. He was just a nut about Russia, one individual. It's like cool. That's based for like Warhammer and God Emperors and stuff, but yeah. when you're actually leading an organization that is also on, you know, the underdog, as far as any conflict is concerned, if you're the underdog business, right? You kind of, you definitely are not in the position to be absolutist about anything. Yeah, that's good for the propaganda, bad for actual governance. Yeah, it's yeah. great for propaganda purposes. Great yeah. for like trying to convince people to go charge into a machine gun. But when, <laughs> when you're actually trying to lead effectively, it's not, not a good call. So you see that contrast between his character there, where. He's just panicking, and then panic leads to... Well, first off, he panics and runs to Constantinople, and then dude gets swacked, and he panics more. Did you see this constant panic, and eventually it just results in him compromising all of his initial principles and letting English troops guard him inside the Russian embassy. Not even Russian troops. Yeah. Because he can't trust them. Right? Well, maybe he can, because it's, like it's a woman, apparently, that assassinates this general. According to Wrangel's theory... Mm-hmm. We're, we're still not sure to you know this day a lot of this is very convoluted and messy and a lot of these it was the 1920s so the, a lot of these assassins were not caught they yeah. just did they were just communist sympathizers and they did they did what they had to do was wartime right but he completely compromises all of his principles as things get worse and worse for him he has no choice whereas Wrangle never abandons them and he actually goes back into this very, very chaotic situation with the remnants of an army. And he actually performs very, very well, especially mobilizing, in terms of mobilizing Cossacks. We talked about the interactions with the journalists and inspiring the will of the people to continue this fight. And there's these, there's a, there's an extra, it's a little earlier on, but the, the, these people were dead set on killing Bolsheviks. It was a, 
It was a relatively nasty war. If they caught communist sympathizers, they'd be hung. He actually captures a bunch of prisoners. That, or sorry, not prisoners. Um, he deals with a bunch of mute, uh, like mutineers and strikers at one point, uh, working in a different dockyard. So at one point, he is dealing with these strikers, actually, and a lot of them are definitely communist agitators that have been kind of that have infiltrated. I think the, the group of dockyard workers. He imprisons them all. And uh, he has to make the tough call to basically kill all the communists among them. Like the, I guess you could call them just the ringleaders. Who knows if they're really communists, right? They just didn't want to work. And they needed them to keep working on the dockyard to bring supplies in from France, who was pr largely providing military aid at this stage in the war. And then he just sends all these dudes to the front. <laughs> yeah, you got to do what you got to do. And it was a, it was a nasty war, but he, he didn't... Sp but through his maintaining the principles that like we have to stop we have to you know it has to be a russia one and indivisible and bolshevism is the you know communism is the enemy of that end right everybody's got to be of the same mindset and he actually has like you know children inspired to go out on their own time and according to the kids like he, he runs into this one kid who's like, yeah, I have seven confirmed reds killed. <laughs> and it's like this 12-year-old. With his, like, dad's rifle. With his dad's stuff. rifle and stuff. So, yeah, no, he's he's got these people really inspired. As yeah. his, um, right. he's, got the, he's got the clergy inspired. He's got the children, the women. Everybody's working. And it, it is a total war yeah. in every sense of the word. Uh, but it's a very chaotic situation to go back to. And I think that you just... Wrangle's such an interesting guy because when, when I first read this, I literally figured like he has to be exaggerating some of the stuff he's doing, like where he's like arrested by Bolsheviks at the very start of the revolution and is about to be executed and he basically just mouths off to them to his face. And I'm like, yeah, I had I, there are two thoughts that went through my mind. I'm like, either this guy has to be making this up or he is just so badass that this is just normal and not extraordinary to him. And he's like, yeah, yep. you don't. But, you know, he is quite a incredible figure. And uh, he definitely could be harsh when he needed to be. But he was also, I would say, in a war that was very, very cruel and very, very well, harsh. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that in my, my next point, which is, like, the ends never really justify the means. That's um, if the means are bad, right? In, in his mind, like, looting, pillaging, and... The crimes of the Soviets are not what we want to perpetrate on our own people. But, mm -hmm. we, you know, we, we can get into that in in a little bit here. Uh, I, I see what you're getting at, though, totally. But, yeah, that, that does bring me to my, my next point. But just to very quickly step back on that, you know, the, the whole my duty. My duty is to accept, I think, is uh, on top of don't panic. You know, you just kind of... You got to do it always with honor. You got to, you got to, if, if, you know, if a challenge comes up, you kind of have to take it and, and bear it and, and deal with it. Right. Mm -hmm. I think that's what makes him badass, as you're saying. Yeah. Right. That's one of the, that's one of the key components. And that's why the book is titled Always with Honor. Because he, he just, he, he has to get back into it, especially in that leadership, military leadership position. So, anyways, ends justify the means. Do they? 
No, I mean, I think that it depends on a case-by-case basis. Yeah, what are the means, right? Yeah, what are the means, what are the ends, right? Now, he, like, very early on, he has this argument with... Actually, he has multiple arguments with different old-school Russian aristocrats. Because they're like, ah, oh, it's just... If they're even close to remotely red, let's just kill them. Yeah. Right? Let's just... Anybody that opposes us and our ability to claw ourselves back into power... I just just shoot him like everybody's the enemy, and let's dehumanize everybody even remotely associated with them. And that's not really Wrangle's thing. Now, as you said, he can be harsh when he needs to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he certainly he certainly hates communism and does view it as something yeah, that's like morally evil and must be opposed by right. it. So, let, so any on, means necessary. On that note, the the strikers that he deals with, if you remember that that excerpt. What I found very interesting is that he immediately, when he made that decision to just, you know, he killed the ringleaders, he, he had them hung, and he sends these guys, that all of them that had been striking on strike, he sent them to the, the front lines. And he's actually kind of like conflicted about the situation, right? He knows that it's like, it, it's a very tough call to make because he knows what is going to be written about him. And he made sure to read it, to be cognizant of it. I think that's that's super important to that. He has to understand, like, he has to justify that this means, the means that he, you know, solved this issue were worth it. Um, he actually reads a little bit of the enemy propaganda. He captures some of it. And one of the things they actually, they, they call him, he, he doesn't have an official, he's the commander-in-chief of the White Army. That's his official title. He has some sort of aristocratic rank, but the communist propaganda actually refer to him explicitly as the Lord of Crimea. <laughs> like he's like, you know, like an overlord, like an evil emperor, basically, right? Like he's Palpatine. And he's very cognizant of that. So moving forward because he knows kind of like underlying reasons why there's there are agitators everywhere that are communist sympathizers or just people that want land reform because that's one of the key things that spurred on the february revolution the few years prior and eventually led to this situation is there needed to be land reform in russia there were many many millions of people that were more or less medieval serfs and peasants yeah Right. Serfdom officially had been abolished, but in practice, yeah, you, it, was still going. It, it was still going on. Like yeah. the um, and, and indeed, many of the reasons why the whites ran into such difficulty in the war is a lot of people. The common people didn't really hate the czar, but they hated the landowning class, yeah. and they feud. You're just the old aristocrats wanting to come back and that's especially why things like the green armies are created now they eventually turn against the bolsheviks when they learn that the bolsheviks are just as nasty to them as any of the old uh things but there are a lot of people in in the even in the white movement who they want more reform they don't want to return to the old sort of conservative czarist days and they're worried that some of their generals are trying to do that Yep, exactly. And Wrangle has to deal with that and assure people that no, I I understand your demands. Yeah, I'm just, not just I'm not just going to yank us back in time. Yeah, and reactionaries are generally perceived as going to be very very vindictive because they've lost power and they're coming back yeah. to it. 
people can just be vindictive, right? It's just that the human nature. If if you revenge is a like really really nasty potential you got to contend with. If you're dealing with someone that you've you've taken something from them, and now they just got that back and more, right? And that's the that's the fear, and that's why a lot of people, despite being conscripted into this red army, right. That isn't very well led, to be perfectly yeah, honest. Yeah, no, it's because they they mention like Budyoni as one of the uh, later yeah. later, I think Marshal Budyoni, who's a fucking idiot. And that's anyways. To, to, long story short, this asshole kept trying to use cavalry in the Second World War against German Panzers. And it, <laughs> he actually just the mental image of that. Well, okay, this asshole. I could go on about that asshole forever. He has mentioned quite a bit Budyani because he encounters Budyani's very badly led troops. Very brave men, but geez, terrible leadership. Uh, Budyani actually like stalled the development of armored vehicles in the Soviet Union. Simon Budyani was his name. He, he, he literally stalled the development because he was like, no, cavalry is faster, therefore it is better. And he was so... He was such an opportunist asshole. You know, he actually was awarded four times the hero of the Soviet Union. Wow. I think he got more than Stalin. Like, <laughs> for doing bad. that. He was, yeah, no, and he got, he was largely responsible for the... Please purges. tell me Stalin killed this guy during the Great Purge. No, he didn't. No. <laughs> he actually instituted that purge in the early 40s. Oh, And boy. got rid of all these, like, really 30s, talented... 30s, Sorry, 30s. Yeah. He did another one in the 40s, too. Oh boy! He, he he was responsible for multiple purges of officers. I, I don't quote me on that, but he, he was responsible for multiple purges of officers that killed like really bright guys that were like, you know what? We should use armored and mechanized infantry. That would be really good if we were to go into a hypothetical future war. Swat. But Yanni was like, no, my horses. <laughs> and he got all these guys killed. Anyways, this is the type of leadership the Reds had, and they didn't... Yeah. They just had a lot of dudes. <laughs> yeah, no, the Reds are... So, it literally starts by throwing the entire civilian population of Moscow and Petrograd against everything else, yeah. and then incorporating captured elements of the white armies, yeah. all the way from private up to general, into their armies. That's how the Red army grows and becomes an effective fighting force yeah. literally by like just I think Budyani's also like things old aristocracy it. too yeah there are some he's not a communist he's there are some like, weird aristocrats who were did it's, fight it's for opportunism the, yeah. because the, the, the reds gained the upper hand yeah. you know, fairly early on until until um Denikin Denikin came the closest to ending this war and yeah. crushing the reds but he again he just he had a little too much of an ego and he tried to bite off more than he could chew. Mm -hmm. But the the means don't always justify the ends. But the just, ends... Just, or sorry, yeah, the ends don't always justify the means. Yeah. Sorry, excuse me. The ends don't always justify the means. Back to that point, very early on, he sees us with the Russian Revolution. Now, he actually is not opposed to land reform. He actually later... Uh, mm -hmm. Back to Wrangell, he doesn't, he's not opposed to land reform. He's not opposed to negotiating and making compromises and, you know, giving up certain aristocratic privileges in favor of the common people of Russia who have been suffering for a very long time at this point. Especially during the First World War. Yeah, and he, he acknowledges because he sees, like, starving people come up to him. He actually witnesses a officer in the right, White Army 
starving, and the guy kills himself rather than starve to death. And he sees this, like, very often. He sees peasants doing this. He sees families, like, killing them. So it's just nasty. It's a nasty situation. He, Parents often kill their kids so they wouldn't starve to death. And he's witnessing this. Yeah. He's witnessing people, even from his relatively armchair position, he's, he is witnessing this on a, on a grand scale. And corpses everywhere, and horses, and the, the smell, and the terror, right? He sees it everywhere. He's not unsympathetic to it. Um, but, so he's not unsympathetic to, like, the aims of having just land reform so that people are actually fed and they don't starve and there's no supply issues. When he sees the red ribbons, right, of these communist revolutionaries way back in 1917, and he's just, like, a colonel at this point. He's not even a... It's not even that high-ranking. He's, he's in charge of a reg, cavalry regiment. He's kind of like, whatever. It's kind of goofy. He's like, yeah. you know, it's just a... You know, it's just a weird... It's a fad, as far as he's concerned. He's like, okay, whatever. Because his friends start wearing it. Aristocrats. They're like, yeah, like, we... Don't you agree with us? He's like, well, yeah, I do, but I think the red armband looks a little goofy. And he actually sees, like, different, like, Cossack regiments instead of flying the old Imperial banners in 1917. At one point, one of them is as like a parody they're like mocking the imperial banner so they fly like women's underwear <laughs> or not women's it was like a skirt so they took yeah. a woman's skirt they painted it red and then they flew it as like their battle colors as like to like you know death to you know screw screw the old this is the new order we're going to create we're going to create our own flags but all they had this is like well you're the idiots flying this woman's skirt as your regimental colors those regimental colors go back like hundreds of years and have a lot of military history going back to the Early, like, when the Cossacks were independent, right? Yeah. And you just got rid of your battle honors for a woman's skirt. Like, well, good for you. Yeah. Not my thing, right? So, and then he sees this slow burn where these guys start really just losing their minds and pillaging and using an opportunity to rape people, to steal from people, to kill people. He, he rides with a bunch of cavalrymen into this town that's actually getting pogromed because the, the local population are, are Jews. And basically they're just killing these Jews and taking all of their possessions, these Red Army soldiers, right, in, the, in this new provisional Red government. And he's just like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, these, these people did nothing. They, you know, Jews were in, incorporated in the military and stuff as far as he was concerned. He wasn't anti-Semitic. Mm -hmm. He was just like, what does this have to do with land reform? You're just opportunistically going after these people who you perceive to be these miserly rich... Well, they were Jews, unfortunately. Made them easier targets, and they were burning down the village. So what does he do? He, well, he schwacks one of them in the face. He actually knocks yeah. him out because he's pissed. Because he basically like, goes into this like shop, and he's like, why is this town burning? What is wrong with these? And this like drunk red army guy's like ah, yeah, stealing all this money and stuff, and he just runs into Wrangle and he punches him in the face instinctively, knocks a guy out, and he has he orders his cavalryman to drag him out. And he's book like, him. Uh, yeah, yeah, book him like court martial this asshole. And all these like red army guys are just running around and yeah. and he's just like I understand, like eventually you're gonna get your great land reform by stealing it from other people, but does that mean justify that end? And he's like, no, it, it doesn't. Like, you gotta seriously think about it because these these people did nothing wrong. They were just they just happened to be a visible target, right? I think I should clarify here that pogroms were more 
committed more by white forces than red. That's but true. But red yeah. did happen and mass looting of both sides. Like on and when white soldiers would often mm. target Jews, there was this sort of anti-Semitism and belief in it, but it was often easy target to loot. So much of this was opportunistic violence and just things being stolen and just mass chaos. So there's a there's a really, really good good excerpt. Um, we don't need to read it per, like verbatim, but he has this exchange with an argument on, on that point of, of the pogroms because he's he actually has a conversation with an officer, and it's not just like it's targeting Jewish commitment that, that that did happen more with the white troops for sure. Mm-hmm. But he and he doesn't like it; like he hates the idea of having a pillage and take from the people, like more or just like really, really inconvenience the people. Yeah, Wrangle's very much against both pogroms and looting and sees yeah. them sees them all as extremely of, it's counterproductive. A, yeah, it's a, it's and, a yeah. breakdown of discipline, and it has nothing to do with this overall mission, which is yeah. one Russia indivisible, but at the same time, like, Denikin was also turning a blind eye to looting. He was just yeah. like... Denikin was just, quite anti-Semitic also, and particularly... Yeah, yeah, particularly... Ter- he was a good general in many respects before he broke down Denikin. Yeah. But, yeah, he... he was one of a number of white Russians who saw basically Jews and Bolsheviks as one and, the same. One and interchangeable. And because of that, he, he never personally ordered his troops to harm Jewish people, but he turned a blind eye to pogroms and things like that, of that nature. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So anyways, there are a lot of more subordinate generals to Denikin that were just like, let's just pogrom them all. Yeah. Let's take it. Screw them. Right? And there are, there are incidents where like, the, you know, some of the... Uh, Jews trying to escape or pulling some relatively egregious things, right? Not yeah. over the top, but like they're instead of hauling a bunch of civilians out on a passenger train that's evacuating at one point, he actually finds a very, very small group of Jews that have occupied this impa- entire passenger train and they have nothing but like pianos. Yeah, and, <laughs> yeah it's like, they, they, they had like a piano store and he was like, Fuck you! And he he dumps all the pianos yeah. out and puts Spoonin on board the train, and he's just like, "Screw you guys! You're not taking your luxuries. Like this is wartime." Yeah. He actually has his troops smash up the pianos and the luxury mirrors and the paintings because he's like, "Listen, yeah. we don't have like I have wounded. There's civilians that need to be evacuated, and there's like like five of you on yeah. this giant train with all your you know luxury goods. Like we right. listen. That can come later. Yeah. Sorry. So. That wasn't out of anti-Semitism. It was just like, it's just, he's a pragmatist, right? Yeah. But at the same time, when he's actually witnessing pogroms, he's extremely disgusted. Because like, there's... And he personally intervenes to stop one, if I remember correctly. Yeah, well, yeah, he, he does stop this this first one he encounters in, yeah. uh, in I think it was 1917. It's very early during the revolution. Yes, yeah. He stops one. and he, Anyways, back to... We've digressed a lot, but this exchange he has with the officer... Where the guy's just like, you know, Wrangle, in wartime, like, soldiers are not monks. They're not aesthetics. You know, they need, they have, like, basic needs that just need to be met. Now, we all know what he means. Yeah. Because this guy was one of the ones, uh, I think, I don't know if he's actually named. I think he keeps him anonymous because he doesn't want to, like, this guy might have been still alive at the time he was writing this. So, he doesn't really want to, like, throw too much shade because they're... When he's writing this, they're they're a political organization, and he doesn't want to cause friction internally. I'm sure. Yeah. And he's still trying to raise money to actually retake Russia at this point. That's why he's writing, publish this book, right? Yes. Yeah. So he's he's like, 
But he actually has a conversation with this guy. He's like, you know, soldiers aren't saints. They're not aesthetics. They're not monks, right? They're not in a monastery. They're hungry. They need they need stuff. And if they take a little bit of a little something, something. Wrangles are smots, always always with honor and ends don't justify the means. Get the fuck out of my office. <laughs> yeah. that, was, that was the extent of the conference. Like, I'm not entertaining that idea at all. Yeah. Like, no, we have standards for mm-hmm. a reason. Yeah. And you get yeah, just as long as your means are within those standards and within your principles, and you don't go. And again, this is going back to like the don't panic thing. This is going back to the always with honor thing, right? When Genekin panics and just has the English troops occupy his embassy. Yeah. Right, he's completely given up on all those three things, those, those three key. And and Wrangle also is even when I think there's these strikers, I think Wrangle personally goes down and like talks to them before he has them all arrested. Yeah, yeah, like he's meeting them on an equal level. Like he's not like some arrogant, you know, rich crap who's speaking chances. down yeah. to them. Yeah, yeah, he actually like meets the ringleaders. Yeah, and tries to get like, what are your demands? But they're are they reasonable? Just, like, kill- Kill yourself, asshole, and fuck you. And he's yeah, just like, okay. he's like, okay. Yeah. To complete well, he, has that game. Meeting, he has meetings with um with a bunch of mayors that go in, and they're the ones that are really arrogant. These like mm-hmm. bull, these, and he's just like, well, I mean, you can be, but like, sorry, like we, it's it's wartime condition. You gotta understand, like you're in the fortress too, right? You can be sent to the front, Mister Old Mayor guy. Do you really want to, or do you want to like help the civilian populace live uh, good lives as far as we can under these conditions, right? Do you want to be? Do you want to be a good leader, or do you want to be a frontline infantryman? <laughs> Choice is yours, right? That's not really a threat per se, but it is like this is the reality of our mm-hmm. our situation, right? Where can you go? Um. So, anyways. Uh, We've been babbling on for quite a bit about this book. You guys are, you guys are just gonna have to read it because I think it's just it's so interesting. He just mm-hmm. the the fact that the ends do not always justify the means. Oh, well, I guess I'll, I'll I'll mention one more point on that. Ends just sorry, the means don't always justify. The ends do not always justify the means. I keep mixing that up, but mm-hmm. that's how I know we've been talking too long about this. But uh, there's another moment where. Yeah, it was, it was the moment he came back after Denikin left, and he met all these generals that were very happy to see him because he was, well, as I, as as you said in the quote, like he's a spotless commander. He had no defeats under his belt, so they're like, "You are like, you are our savior. You're gonna save us." And he's like, "Okay, cool." And they flatter him with praise. He doesn't really care because he knows it's over. Mm-hmm. And they're like, "Yeah, you're gonna save us. We're gonna win this war." And he's like, "Okay, sure." Uh, anyways, the generals are like, anyways, we've been doing differently since Denikin's gone, right? Because one of Denikin's issues is his end was he kind of did want to just restore aristocratic power. Yeah. In, in many ways, right? He wanted to restore political power to himself and his homies and his henchmen and people loyal to him. And they're like, we obviously don't want that, and Miss, you know, General Wrangle, Your Excellency, you don't want that either. And he's like, "Yeah, not really. I just, we we need to just not have Bolsheviks run this country. That's mm-hmm. that's my goal." So they're like, "Yeah, so we've been doing it differently." And he's like, "Oh, great. You're gonna." And he's like, "We're gonna show you how differently we do it." And they they go to this meeting, 
and, and um, it's a bunch of like lieutenant colonels and stuff and majors, like pretty mid-ranking high slash somewhat high-ranking officers. And there's like fifty of them in the room, and they're all like having this really, really kind of circular discussion that doesn't really go anywhere because there's so many different perspectives. And he looks around, and he just remembers, like, I don't recognize any of these guys. They were lieutenant colonels when I left. And he realizes a lot of these dudes were, like, peasants who were, like, privates in the former Imperial Army. And because so many guys had died, they just kept getting promoted. Right? These guys didn't actually have the know-how. They weren't experts. They didn't understand the bigger picture, per se. They were in leadership positions. And maybe they were great combat leaders, but in terms of making these really wide arching strategic decisions and how to run this you could call it quote unquote state <laughs> yeah, effectively yeah. they didn't know a heck of a lot he was just like this is his, his exact words are this is not a military council I don't care what uniforms these guys have on how many stars or pips or whatever they have on their shoulder boards or what ranks they call themselves right these means actually are really inefficient they don't work this, this bureaucracy that has been created, and he, he this is a recurring theme, he cuts down on a lot of bureaucracy, everything from land reform to the journalists and stuff um, to dealing with the military and how it's organized and subcommittees, even like subcommittees on like theater and stuff he's like dealing with. He's just, yeah. like, again, he's a dictator, so he has to kind of, not through his own free will, but <laughs> he has to kind of manage everything. Uh, he, he's like, let's just cut down on, we don't need... 50 different people arguing in a room especially when the actual context if you look at it if you think about it these guys don't actually know what the mission really is because they were so junior like a year ago because he's straight up says some of these guys that are lieutenant colonels were privates they're not even like sergeant not even non-commissioned officers right they've never been in a leadership role they've just been thrust into it and they just want to argue Right, because they've got e egos, because they've been promoted so quickly, and uh, his his thing right away is like, no, this uh, these means don't justify the ends. Like we all want the same ends. We we want to stop the Bolsheviks. We want to stop the Reds. But if everybody's going to argue and panic, and there's going to be a lot of bureaucracy and red tape, right? It's not going to work. So, anyways, those are those are my uh, three takeaways. Um, would like to end it with this. His, we're kind of it's not a spoiler to the book because it's the last uh, section. But before we uh, end it with that, this this excerpt about the unknown soldier on two forty two ninety two. There, I want you to tell me from your perspective. Um, is there another takeaway? Do you have Do you have anything else to add? Like, is there another takeaway that well, uh, you've got? Because I've been babbling on about my yeah from my to give context like running fire force ventures and stuff and doing business see stuff i took a lot of business leadership stuff but what what did you take out of it i mean i agree with pretty much everything you said i don't run a business and obviously my mindset's different than you on that well, i guess you, for that reason you do run the podcast that's yeah, it's yeah, yeah. Well, not not in this. It's not in the same way or scale, but yeah. Your employee is just you, unfortunately. Yes. Your boss. And yeah, no, that's that's a bit of a different thing. But what I come from is there's, I don't know. I there's something about like lost causes. I find that there's a very interesting sort of. So you like to lose. 
No, no, no. That's not that's not what I was uh, going at. But you're a loser. No, no, no. It's more on the idea that, like Wrangle, as we've mentioned many times, is a pragmatist. But he's someone who, until his death, which is spoiler, like four years after the last like white remnants in the far east of Russia, which weren't even under his control, were crushed. Yeah. Um, he never loses faith that. Russia will be, communism will be ended in Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's interesting. I don't know. I mean, maybe it's cause you know, we, we also talk a lot about, you know, Rhodesia and stuff like that. And, you know, both of you and I have read on things but like, you know, the civil war and stuff and uh, just lost causes have an interesting, like, I don't want to get into like romanticizing bullshit here, but it's interesting to see sort of how deeply people can believe in them and how, you know, especially a guy like this, who is like, if Wrangle had joined the Bolsheviks, he probably would have been the best. He probably could have won them the war like two years quicker. Yeah. It's interesting to see how a man will sometimes, you know, purposely stay on the losing side and continue fighting for the losing side rather than just, you know, jump and ship like Danikin did. Out of a sense of sort of honor and duty, it's just right. it, to me. It's to me that's it's it's just it's interesting. It's not even the loss. It's not even the cause itself. It's just like that act of almost self sacrifice. Yeah. In in the name of, I guess, something. I don't want to just say abstract or or, or greater, right? Because that that's kind of a trope almost mm-hmm. that you can say you know self sacrifice for something greater. Uh, but acknowledging, I guess, that there is something greater. Yeah. It's not even self-sacrifice, not, but it's like acknowledging that there is something abstract and greater than you. Mm-hmm. And therefore, and that's, it's manifested in, in your ability to carry your duty. Mm-hmm. There is something bigger than you. Anyways, there's a, there's a fucking windstorm outside. Yeah. Apparently. <laughs> So sorry if that's being picked up by the mics, but uh, let's uh, let's wrap off here on actually the as I mentioned at the very beginning of this podcast, this book is broken up into basically a bunch of really long diary entries and the um, a speech he gives at in 1927, just prior to his death, possibly by poisoning by a communist. We will never know for sure because he, he doesn't live to see the Second World War. But uh, we will um, we'll end it here with this excerpt. The nations of Europe are beginning to understand the danger of the red madness, of the risk the world of civilization runs in the existence of an international hotbed which uses the immense resources of our land to keep up its destructive work. The heart of our country has been quickened by the forces of sanity. They will grow and cannot be stopped. We are no longer alone in our struggle owing our existence to none but ourselves. We wait calmly for the day when our forces will be recalled by our country, and we shall give them to her joyfully. The other day I visited the grave of the unknown soldier. What a magnificent symbol of heroism, love, and an army's self-sacrifice for its country. Passerby uncovered to pay homage to the hero. Every country has put up similar monuments. Everywhere the memory of the hero and patriot is commemorated. The Russian army alone is forgotten. Its high deeds, its privations, and its sufferings are nowhere remembered. Deprived of its country, hunted and disowned, it is forced to earn its bread by hard work 
in the mines, the factories, the yards. The unknown Russian soldier, who has shed his blood so lavishly for the common cause, still waits for the moment of his honoring. His tomb is deserted. He has no crown, no flame of remembrance. We are confident that the hour of recognition is at hand. History, which knows no favoritism, will tell the importance of our struggle, the capacity of our sacrifices. It will know that the fight we carried on for the love of our country, for the resurrection of Russia as a nation, was indeed at the same time to safeguard the culture of Europe, the struggle for an age-long civilization, for the defense of Europe against the Red Terror. On that day, the nations of Europe will salute the Russian army, paying homage to its valor, its sufferings, and its death agonies. If I may be so bold, I think that in some ways the forgotten struggles of the White Army are now being remembered more and more and as people are reading more and more history. And Yeah, I hope they do get into history. It's interesting. Yes, no, I, I think I think his, his last wish that their sacrifice will be remembered are... Yep. It's coming back because of books like this. Yep. Yeah. So, thank you for listening to this interesting little off the uh, beaten trail podcast. We don't normally do them like this. And well, we don't we generally don't... do generals. We do generally yeah. soldiers. We, but, yeah. we don't generally do generals. It's a, that should yeah. be that should be uh, on the website. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's nice, but um, yeah, we hope we hope we can do more. Kind of, this was a bit of an open forum podcast we've done we did one for the new york special but probably the most open form one uh we've done so far we have a few more interviews coming up mm-hmm. we've got a big one coming we've got up. a very big one coming up uh you'll have to look you guys will have to look up for that but many thanks to our many subscribe star fans many thanks to the members of the fire force ventures buyers club who are actually listening to this live if you want to listen to this live you can actually join us at the Fire Force Ventures Buyers Club. That's my company, www.fireforceventures.com. And on the note of Russia, we sell some Russian-type things and some military-type things on the topic of military history. We sell some military-type things. We sell some military-type books as well. Yep. Chris Cox's Fire Force and Survival Course available now on fireforceventures.com. Please check those out. We interviewed Chris not too, too long ago, and we hope to be interviewing him again uh, to go over survival course and uh, just have yeah. a, a great discussion again about it because we had, a, we had a great discussion with him about Fire Force, which is his first work, detailing his time in the Rhodesian Light Infantry. So check out my business there, fireforceventures.com. Also check out our partner Commando Blog. You can find our. Uh, you might be listening to this podcast on Commando, Commando Blog. Blog of our friends Don over at Commando Blog. That's yeah, they have. Cool they're shit. a great website with tons of articles and podcasts and things on uh, military topics and history and outdoor living and guns Gun and guns. all kinds of fun stuff. Guns and you've been you, you've been getting more into guns. Yes, I. Mr. Smelly. Yes, Mr. Smelly. What's your, what's your SMLE's name? My SMLE's name is Rose. And he just doxed her. People are gonna find out where she lives now. Hmm? She's a hoe. She's been she's been around. You know that, right? Your your rifle. She's a bit of a hoe. Yes, no, but like all great ladies, she still has her secret ways. <laughs> <laughs> you sleep with her every night now. Yes. Yeah. Right? You, you've been uh, you've been taking. You got yourself a jungle carbine recently. I heard. Yeah. No. Yes. I. You you got the three hundred three bug, I think. Yes, yeah, no, I'm I'm very much one for the British rifles. Yeah, we just uh, we shot your three hundred three for the first time the other day. Yeah, no, yeah, it's so uh, 
Yes, yeah, guns are cool, and you know, and then, if you haven't got into them, I suggest you maybe try yeah, it out. On, see the, what on you the think. note of like the, the Russian topic here, but you also shot a Mosin the same day for, for the first time, I think. Have you yeah, shot a Mosin before? I don't think so. So that was the first time you've ever shot a Mosin. Was a... Actually, no, that's not true. Well, I was at a gun in the a gun club at my university. We shot a Mosin. Okay. Once. Yeah. But this is like you shot it right after you shot a. SMLE for the first time, and you're just like, "What the fuck is this garbage?" <laughs> I remember you actually. We I think I have a video somewhere. Yeah. By the way, if you don't watch the video of us shooting, it's on the Buyers Club. Yeah, no, a, yeah. A cool. We, we we did a behind the scenes video mm-hmm. on uh, some of the podcast stuff. And we hope to do produce more video content in the future. Right now, it's only available on Buyers Club. Yeah. Once uh, also this global pandemic is gone, we'll be yeah, able to do going. more video content and stuff like Go that. Places. Yeah. Yeah. And you may also be listening to this, by the way, on our website at www.menamongmenstories.com. Thank you again for supporting us if you are supporting us there. If you like our work, please consider supporting us on Subscribestar. Uh, there's links at www.menamongmenstories.com. You can find us there. You can support us uh, even if it's a buck or if it's a hundred bucks. It doesn't matter. It really helps us. Well, number one, get these books. Yeah, afford these books. This one's actually much more affordable, though, than the last yeah. book we covered. The la- This one you can uh, get from our good friends at Mystery, uh, Grove. Mystery Grove Publishing yeah. for about around $20. 20 bucks. Not bad. Un- yeah, unlike, Crow unfortunately, Crocast's book, which is <laughs> over 100 yeah, we, we do hope it gets uh, republished. We're, we're, we we're, very much do, yes. We're working on some weird publishing stuff, too. We actually too. are. We have a secret book. Secret. About a veteran of Rhodesia and a number of other conflicts that we're trying to get published, but we'll let you know how it goes. Of, of the Moon Wars, the Mars the moon Wars. War. Yeah, no, yes, he fought. He, the, the reason <laughs> we do not live wars. under the 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 the, the insect war. overlords from yeah. the the giant Simpson ants is because of this guy. Yeah. So, yeah, we're, we're always working on stuff behind the scenes. If you want to see that, check out the Fire Force Ventures Buyers Club. This is again, that's my my company and. Uh, Commando blog, support them there. Subscribe Star is where you can support us. And of course, to our many, many great listeners, law enforcement LEOs especially, many thanks to you guys for supporting us and thank you for our to our Buyers Club for listening. We hope to catch you around in the next podcast. Bindu. So pull up, grab a chibouli, and have a great day. <laughs>